Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. Welcome back to Unleashed at Work at Home. My guest today is Carol Sumbry, and she's the owner of Carol's Canine Training and Behavior Counseling. Thanks so much for joining me today, Carol. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. Um, and as I do with most of my guests, I like to start kind of way back at the beginning. Um, so when you were, you know, nine or 10, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up when everyone said, so Carol, what do you want to be when you grew up? What was your answer? Um, I was going to be an attorney. An attorney. <laughs> Nothing to do with animals. I did not come up through the way most dog behavior consultants do. Um, well, I thought it was interesting. I um, I just thought the whole legal system was interesting. I worked at and um, volunteered also at an attorney's office when I was in um, high school. And um, although I was a dog lover and begged my mother for a dog, I didn't get my first dog until I was about seven or eight because my mom didn't think we could be responsible before that. Mm -hmm. And she was right. Um, so uh, all the strays would run away to my house, always have had a passion for animals, but didn't identify it until later. How much later? <laughs> Um, I would say probably, um, in my maybe 30, take me from high school where you think you're going to be an attorney until your thirties when you decide it's animals. What, what was that part of your life like? Well, you know, I feel like most people do what, what you know, what I do as far as dog behavior and training um, and aggression cases, you know, kind of grew up with dogs, grew up in 4-H or grew up with horses. A lot of people, um, I did not follow that typical path. So um, I blame my husband and I can still get away with that a little bit, but he um, decided he was going to rescue a dog. And I was like, oh, it's not a good time. You know, we're thinking about moving and, you know, we weren't married yet. So he got this dog and I was like, oh my, you've got to be kidding. So he got this dog and then I was like, okay, it's okay. And so then we ended up getting a dog and he had rescued a whippet from a shelter. And my family had always been involved with the shelter. We had always donated and things like that. So shelters and being part of the shelter, you know, and, and feeling like they felt a need in our community and supporting them was always part of my life. But we adopted a greyhound and then that got me down this path of greyhound rescue. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was kind of by accident. I fell into this and then I fostered a dog that I not, did not enjoy living with. <laughs> and I thought, well, if I want to live with her, how is anybody else? And she was actually returned multiple times. I ended up keeping her. And, um, I said, I got to do something about this dog because, you know, if I love her and I'm not enjoying her behaviors and not really know how to manage them, 
I've got to how do I do something. So I went to a yeah. training class and like so many people, I got the bug, you know, I trained her again and I thought, oh my gosh. And I will honestly tell you since that day and I have fostered many dogs, I have never adopted a dog since that has not gone to some type of class. Mm. So even with the skills that you have, you still like to to go into the class environment with dogs that you have. There's a value for you there. Absolutely. You and I go to school for 13 plus years. Uh, it's my belief that every dog should go to school. Mm-hmm. Right? And, um, you know, I think that we would, as somebody who's worked in a shelter, I've worked at a shelter now for 18 years, 18 and a half years. And, um, you know, dogs are great at being dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I always joke, I love them, but I really don't like dog behavior, which I know that sounds very odd, but I don't like jumping. I don't like the dog that's, you know, unmanaged in my home. And, you know, so it, I take it upon myself to be responsible, therefore to train the dog. I take it upon myself to be responsible to train the dog, which is sort of the piece that we're always hoping families see that the behavior that the dogs are offering is completely appropriate and normal uh, and perhaps not desired. Like you said, adopting the dog you didn't really like living with. So career-wise, before you wound up in the dog world, what were you doing? (laughs) I was, um, did a couple things. I was a regional for a jewelry chain where I traveled and um, I love that. So um, when I first got out of college, I was a regional for a jewelry chain. I managed um, several clothing stores, um, was a regional for a clothing store, Um, ended up Oddly enough, I had worked in high school at a bank, ended up back in banking and did um, took people's homes and cars away from them. I was a mortgage mm. collector, counselor, and private investigator. So I worked as a private investigator because that spun off into um, some legal stuff. So I kind of followed that little bit of legal thing. Yeah. Um, I worked for years as a private investigator. Oh, that is so cool. That's so cool. Okay, so tell me more about that. Um, well, I always joke, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but <laughs> this has been my longest, so apparently I'm here. Um, I did insurance fraud um, cases. I did skip tracing where I found people who didn't want to be found. Um, yes, I did a little bit of um, cases where, you know, spouse hires you. Those are the worst. Um, I did, um, work for some national companies to check for employee theft. Mm-hmm. So lots of different things working because when I was, um, I freelanced for three different companies when I was a, um, private investigator. Mm-hmm. So one specialized in insurance fraud, one did miscellaneous and one did mostly business and, and, um, shops and things like that. So interesting. Yeah, I don't think I've actually talked to somebody who's a PI before. Um, so Not tell as me. as on TV, I have to tell you. Everybody really? thinks that. Because on TV, you only catch the 10%. It's kind of like dog training. You don't see the 90% that went into the 10%. Same thing with dog training. When you see somebody whose dog is walking really well and you go, oh, I want that dog. And then you mm-hmm. don't realize the 9% they put it. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I see them on TV, particularly anytime when someone's following someone or having, you know, a stakeout of any sort, I think, 
oh, I would have to go to the bathroom and I would get bored and I would start reading my book and I would I would miss whatever important thing I was supposed to have seen um, because I just couldn't do that part. Uh, but the the paperwork and the computer searches and all of that would probably be equally overwhelming for me, the level of detail and sifting that you need to go through to find uh, information. But so tell me what, how did it help you to have a background that was quite varied before you wound up in the dog world and in the shelter? What were the benefits of that? Um, That's a great question. I think for me, it was because I did a lot of different things. And, um, you know, I still think this is a people business. You hear so many people say, oh, I want to work with animals. That's why I got into this business. But, you know, we have to realize, especially for dogs, what's on the other end of the leash. And so, you know, unless you're working in the zoo, maybe, um, you know, you're really working with people and having to have the people skills and understanding how to read people and have hard conversations with people sometimes, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I still think this is a huge people business because it doesn't matter. You can be the best trainer in the world, but if you can't reach the person who's living with that, that dog. I work with dogs exclusively, so I'm going to say dogs mm-hmm. when I say this. Um, you're, you know, it's useless. Yeah. You know, and I always joke, not to be stuff out. Teach my, I don't compete with my dogs. I dogs don't know 50 trips. I don't have that kind of time. Are you kidding? Um, <laughs> but I think that is literally what helps me um, be able to identify with the average dog owner because I think there's this huge divide between between dog trainers and behavior consultants and the general public. Mm -hmm. And I think until we learn to bridge that gap, we are going to struggle because, you know, every time you go to a seminar, people are like, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And I say, okay, is that realistic to ask your client to do? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I love. There's a lot of techniques that we share that we talk about. But the reality is, is the average dog owner that comes to you for help going to do it, going to be able to grasp the concepts, going to make the time, um, you know, sometimes you do, you get that dream client that loves to train. But yeah. one of the things I ask all my clients is, tell me on a scale of one, two, and three. One, I love training my dog. Two, I'll do what I have to do. Three, I really have minimal time and desire to do training. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I ask them up front mm-hmm. because you can write the best plan, but if your client doesn't have the time, energy, or ability to do it, what what's the point? Yeah. And I think that's really valuable to ask that in a non-judgmental way. Like any of those answers is totally fine. I, as the trainer, just need to know where you are um, because it affects what I will be recommending to you. So to say to people, I'm not expecting you to have this level of passion that I might have. When I used to hire trainers, I would tell them, we hired you because you're abnormal. So don't expect our clients to do what you did. And it was really sometimes tough for them because they were like, you know, well, I turned my life upside down for my dog. Yeah. And that's what I think is amazing about you and part of why I hired you, but also not at all what I want you to ask our clients to do. Um, So there is a piece there that's so important of recognizing I mean, gosh, we have so much on our plates, all of us, and there are so many things we should be doing. And if there are simpler ways to improve a relationship with the dog that don't require knowing 50 tricks, then, you know, yes, most of us are there. Um, And I think that's really, really valuable. It is a people business and, and it needs to be a people business. We do need to be 
recognizing that and and putting it first and foremost in our in our understanding, at least in my opinion, in our understanding of what it is we're doing. Because the more we're able to meet the people where they are, the better the outcomes for the dogs just across the board. Absolutely. And along that, not to get down a long rabbit hole here, but um, I was trying to find some studies. I'm kind of a study geek. And I know we don't have studies or anything about what percentage of people who have dogs take a take a formal course of some type, whether it's online, whether it's in person, some type of training help. And I was unable to find numbers. Um, there was somebody who provided, I believe they were in the UK, um, a number of, they thought it was like around 4%. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know whether that's the case. And I don't know whether somebody, if somebody out there has a number and I can't find the studies on it. But, you know, I always, we used to always say back in the day before we had so much studies, I've been doing this a long time. I've been training for 28 years now mm-hmm. um, and doing behavior for over a decade. So I've been doing this a long time. So uh, we didn't have studies years ago. We used to always say, Roughly one out of 10 shelter dogs have had, has had some type of training. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if we're generous and we say that, mm-hmm. um, my question to every dog professional out there um, is, how do we reach the other 90%? Yeah. I'm, I'm being generous. Before they become a euthanization case, a behavior case, a shelter dog, a rehome dog, how do we, how do we reach the other 90%? And I think as an industry, we're not asking that question. Mm-hmm. And that that is a question that's well worth asking. I don't have I don't know where to find that information either, but I do know I heard at a conference years ago somebody say years and years and years ago, um, ninety five percent of a dog, ninety five percent of dogs never see a dog trainer, um, and so my my theory as a as a business owner was let's not fight over the five percent that are that are going, but let's find some of these dogs that are out there that we could help and we could serve. And um, you train the ones in your zip code, I'll train the ones in my zip code, but there's a lot in my zip code that I'm not reaching. And there's a lot in your zip code that you're not reaching. And I don't need to compete with the business down the street because there's so many dogs. And if we could all be reaching more, there's plenty, there's plenty out there that could be uh, served by people who are ready and willing and excited to do so. Yeah, it is a matter of how do we communicate the beauty and value of it, the relationship that comes as a result of understanding another species and appreciating it in a way that's a little bit different for many, many people. And and one thing that I think has gotten in the way is a little bit of a lack of curiosity that most people who have a dog think they know dogs. And um, I, I, I sometimes tell my husband that I think I'm a, a cat owner in the way most people are dog owners. Like I have cats. I've had cats my whole, well, not my whole life, my whole adult life with him. Um, I like cats. I have no desire to read a book about cat training. It's not like my personal passion. And for dogs, I'm like, oh, what makes them tick? Oh my gosh, I need to know everything. So you know, I'm just kind of like muddling through my cat and I, and, and we do great-ish, but someone who really understood how to communicate with me what I'm not seeing in my relationship with my cat could change things a lot for this cat and not for previous cats, but for future cats. 
And I think that's how most people are with their dogs. They grew up with dogs. They think they know dogs. They don't have any curiosity about what makes dogs tick. So what do you do when you're working with people that helps them see that they actually don't know very much and that it is safe and welcome to be educated about that as opposed to that you judge them for not knowing something? That's a good question. I would say what I do, first of all, your numbers are kind of in line with my estimates too. Yeah, I thought um, that was interesting. And um, so I would say that, you know, I try to show them or teach them something that's easy that will have immediate impact. Okay. Mm -hmm. Something that's easy. I try to share a little bit about body language and, you know, explaining to them that it's so important for us to, when we brought this and other species into our home, for us to learn how they, how they communicate. Um, and I would say I also, so I try to give them something easy that, and that they can do right away. Um, as I said, and then probably try to hit them with something they didn't know. Okay. And so, you know, an emotional button. Would you like to have a better relationship? Or did you know that? You know, all species shares food as part of a bonding ritual. Um, did you know, you know, food can change brain chemistry? You know, so so I try to give them a little nugget, if you will, mm-hmm. something to make them think, wow, I didn't know that, or I didn't yeah. think about it that way. And so um I and I try to make it relatable to to them and their relationship. Yeah, I'm always reading and somewhere I heard that you remember, I can't even remember the percentage, you know, a small percentage of what you read, a small percentage of what you hear, but 100% of what you feel. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to hit the feel button with my client. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not hard. I feel like when you have a dog, because most of people love their dog. Oh yeah. Um, you know, they didn't, they didn't call you to inquire about something, whether it's a private or a behavior or a class, if they didn't care. Right. So we know they care. So it's really not hard to find that emotional button. And, you know, there's to me, like dogs are lovely. There's so many great things, but I do try to hit the emotional learning piece. So I would say emotional learning piece, keeping it easy. Because we really are completely driven by emotion. I mean, humans as a species really love to believe we're rational, but we're not. A bit. I mean, we occasionally are <laughs> rational, but we are running around just doing everything based on emotion. And and that's not wrong. Like that is not a flaw in us either. Uh, mm-hmm. But to be able to connect with them on an emotional level for them to be able to see uh, something that they didn't know, change their perspective, shift something where it's not uh, not a piece of brain learning, something they understand, but something that they feel. I think that's really powerful. And your point about bonding over food reminds me of, I believe it was Kathy Sadeo's book where she talked about the word companion that literally means one I share bread with, you know, the come mm-hmm. is the, the, the joining and pan being bread, the roots of that. And it was just like a little twist on info that we all kind of know, like, of course, I know that food is an important part of bonding, bonding rituals, et cetera, et cetera. But to realize that it's so important that it's actually in the root of the word makes it a little bit clearer for people, I think, sometimes when they're concerned about using food to train because they're like, oh, that's manipulative. Oh, really? And yet mm-hmm. yesterday I met a friend for, um, we 
we weren't able to meet for lunch and we weren't able to meet for dinner, which was like there was an assumption that we were meeting for a meal. So we met for ice cream in the afternoon, which was awesome. So yay, lucky me, I got ice cream. (laughs) But what was particularly interesting was like we weren't throwing out the food variable. We weren't saying, well, we'll just go for a walk um, because we see each other very rarely. And so, of course, we were going to have lunch or dinner or, oh, well, that doesn't work. Okay, ice cream at three o'clock. Perfect. Food, 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 food. And yes, I get my dog treats when when I'm working on reinforcing behavior. Totally logical. But the emotion piece, I think, is really interesting there. So then 18 years ago, you wound up in a shelter, not really as a plan, but as something, how it evolved. Was that what you expected? Were you intending to go into shelter work when you got yourself bit by the dog bug? No, I had, you know, I had always been involved with the rescue and then I started doing therapy work and then that kind of, I did some therapy work and volunteering at the shelter. And then um, when a position opened, I decided to leave the corporate world and, you know, take that on. Um, Like many people, I didn't, I lasted about five or seven years before I had burned up, probably about six almost. And um, I decided to leave it at the time. I was had a training box. So I was doing that on the side. And the executive director was like, I don't want you to leave. You know, how about to stay here and do some classes? Well, then that involved into more. So, it, you know, nothing was planned. You know, I'm kind of a little bit of a free spirit. Like I kind of go with the flow and I'm just a big believer in, um, you know, I joke, I don't know what to do. I do when I grow up. It's like, mm-hmm. Life just comes to me. And, you know, whatever the plan is, I keep an open mind and I follow it. So I'm a little bit of a free spirit that way. Um, so, yeah, no, I didn't plan on it. And um, but I've been in rescue for years and I can't imagine that I would ever not in some way be doing that nonprofit because I yeah. believe we have to give back to this world. Yeah. So I think free spirit actually means that someone is in touch with their emotions and their values and beliefs. Um, It seems to me that the people I would describe as free spirits often do things that I find surprising, not because I think it's out of alignment with who they are, but just I didn't see the connection. So I didn't, I don't, you know, on paper, see a connection with the kid who wants to be a lawyer, then becoming a rep for jewelry stores, then becoming a bank person, then becoming a PI, and then becoming a shelter director. That doesn't feel like the logical projection. Um, And yet, for someone who is aligned with what lights her up and what you know, makes her brain excited and what makes her feel connected to people and her values and all of that. Well, then it all kind of makes sense. It's one of those things you can see in reverse. So free spirit. What does free spirit mean to you? It, it definitely means letting um letting life have its, you know, life's gonna have its ups and downs and you know, continuing to follow what feeds your soul. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what I believe it is. You know, and I'm, I think so many people are working 40 plus hours in positions they don't like, or, you know, mm-hmm. are trapped in a world that doesn't, doesn't meet their needs, doesn't make them happy and doesn't feed their soul. And I've just always been one to do what feeds my passion and my soul, just like you said, yeah. and um willing to take those turns and those risks that come with it. 
You know, I, I just, you know, at the end of the day, we all have the same amount of hours. So why would we spend one hour doing something we don't enjoy? I mean, we all have to, you know, it's called adulting <laughs> sometimes. Um, but, you know, if you can do something that feeds your soul, um, you'll never work a day in your life, right? Yeah. Or whatever the saying is. <laughs> so for me, I can connect to what that means for me. And that it's different for every person. And for some people who have taken on the mantle of responsibility, and this is how I have to be, I'm curious if you can say, what do you notice inside you when you know this feeds my soul or this does not? What is what is your signal that tells you yes or no? What is it? Um do you look forward to it? Do you get up with joy? Do you do something? I mean, we all have to do things, you know, I have to do some vet reports today. Not my favorite thing, but you know, I find some way to be like, oh, after I get that done, I'll do this. So we don't have to do things we don't enjoy. I and mean, that's just life. But I think um when it doesn't feel like work, when yeah. when it's something you would do, regardless of whether you were getting paid, whether it's a topic that you watch a you know a video or listen to a podcast about or read a book on you know you then you know you know you mm-hmm. mentioned like the cat and the dog thing earlier mm-hmm. you know <laughs> you you know that you can yeah. tell where you're putting where are you willing to invest your time and energy mm-hmm. um those are the things that feed your soul yeah you know and i think as a society we're told we're supposed to do this and we're supposed to you know do this and do that and i've just you know, I never believed that because I think it changes constantly. And I think that you have to do what makes you happy. We're, you know, we're all given one life. And oh, why do something that you wouldn't do, even if you weren't getting paid or if you had free time, like you just said, you'd read a dog book, you know, but you wouldn't read the cat book. And I, I get that. Yeah. Um, so what, what pulls that you, you know, if you just look at where you want to spend your time and the kind of things that watch and the kind of things that resonate with you and make you feel good and make you feel alive, um, you'll find your, your passion. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really helpful for people to hear different, different ways of interpreting and understanding it, because I think that there is a lot of messaging about, you know, well, you'll know when it's right. And people are like, how will I know? How will I know? (laughs) Um, And so you gave some specifics there that people can attach to. And for some, it's somatic. And for some, it's intellectual. And for some, it's emotional. And and each of us has to find it. There isn't a, you know, oh, you know, the thumb on your right hand will twitch and then you'll know. It would be so easy if we could all just say that, but that is not how we know. Um, But this art of self-discovery, of knowing who you are and what you like and what you want and what feeds your soul is, I think, what we're here to do. And when people lean into that and connect to that, I think that's where the magic happens. I think that's where people do their greatest work. And the world needs more people who are alive and excited and engaged with what they care about. So I like I like the phrase um, of following what feeds your soul. So I always ask my guests for some words that have meaning to them. And the words you shared are, is it candy or is it gold? Can you tell me a little bit about that? How did that phrase come into your life and what does it mean to you? Yeah, I actually used to have it written in my on my mirror. Um, and I, you know, I'm always big on giving people credit because, you know, 
we learn from other people and, you know, um, I'm, we're always learning and I wish I could remember where I got that. I feel like mm -hmm. it was some book because it was many, many years ago. And I've even looked a couple of times to see if I could find where that came from. Um, and I don't remember, I wish I could give credit to whoever, um, but I, but I did, and it really resonated with me. And so, you know, is it candy or is it gold? Meaning, is it going to give you a quick high, you know, like a nice sugary piece of chocolate? Or mm -hmm. is it an investment in something that's really important to you? You know, and I guess like one example I think of is like, you know, I know people who will do like retail therapy. They'll have a stressful day and they're like, oh my God, I go shopping. Mm -hmm. And not, you know, I like to shop as much as the next person. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> but is that candy or is that gold? Um, mm -hmm. So what if you said I had a really stressful day and you know what, I'm going to go spend time, I'm going to go work out and maybe spend some time with my dogs and, or go to a yoga class. To me, like that's an investment and that's gold. And mm -hmm. so I find myself asking, you know, asking myself that question a lot, you know, when I'll be like, oh, I want to do this. Well, do you really want to do that? Or is it because if you saw something, you know, flash up on social media that, you know, oh, this is, you know, the seminar to go to or something like that. I see people who like, oh, they go, you know, they feel like if they miss a seminar, they're not a good, you know, dog trainer or dog person. You know, we have such imposter syndrome in this, mm -hmm. this um, industry, I feel like um, that that's a whole nother, I know, topic. But, um, and I feel like you really have to, you know, disconnect from social media. You really have to disconnect from some of the expectations of pressure and ask yourself, you know, if I have this much time in my day or if I have a free hour, am I going to go do this or this? And again, is it something that's going to give me a quick high, so to speak, or is it going to be something I'm investing in my long-term emotional and mental health or physical health? Thank you. Love that. Can you share with us something that feels like gold to you? Just a small part of your life that that you're like, this is some of my gold? Um, for me, a lot of times it is, you know, walking my dogs, the park, especially mm -hmm. around dusk. Or um, mm -hmm. I'm not a one since I would love to see what sunset <laughs> looks or sunrise looks like, but. Unless I'm staying up all night, I don't know what that looks like. Um, but there's something just really peaceful about the end of the day and the sun mm -hmm. coming down. And, um, you know, dogs are, you know, they roll in the grass. And, you know, if you watch them, like, they know, they know whether it's candy or gold. You know what I mean? Yeah. Every day. So for me, you know, I'm exercising, I'm getting fresh air, I'm disconnected. You know, I'm not going to say I don't pull out my phone, take a video or two sometimes. Um, to capture that moment or because I'm training my dogs because I'm, I am, I'm blending. I like every other woman who in this world, I'm multitasking. I'm exercising myself. I'm exercising my dog, but you know, to watch them just stop. And we always are big at relaxing on a walk because I don't want the walk to be like, well, come on, we got to go for a walk because we have to, you know what I mean? I got a quick picture for a walk. I want it to be them to be able to relax. I want me to be able to relax. You know, if we stop and look at the sunset or whatever. So I'm really big on, um, for that, for me, that's gold. Um, but what's gold today might be totally different than what's gold tomorrow. What's gold tomorrow might be connecting with friends over a meal. Mm -hmm. Maybe even ice cream. Rumor has it. <laughs> that can be very valuable. <laughs> now I'm going to have ice cream on my mind all day. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. But, but actually, 
I mean, to tie it back to that, is it candy or is it gold? Um, the gold in yesterday was that I got to have the most amazing conversation with somebody. I mean, I loved our conversation and the candy part of it, I got to have both, was the ice cream. And we scheduled it a little bit around the candy, but the gold was what motivated us and moved us toward it. And your your phrase is nice. I love it because, because both feel attractive. But I think we all know that the candy is so short-lived. It really is this like, that made me feel better in the moment, but now I don't actually feel better. But the those moments that are like, ah, this, this is gold. There's something really beautiful about that. And it it can be a really nice way of weighing two things that both feel attractive, like I could do this or this. And so often what we're looking at is, um, you know, unattractive versus attractive. You know, I don't want to do that. So I will do this. But what you're, you're saying, like, you know, the, will I do a little retail therapy or will I go for a walk with my dog? What category of, of, oh, that there's some appeal for each of these, but one is not going to last for me. And the other one is there's a real, beauty in that, a simplicity in, is it candy or is it gold? Um, and as someone who's completely chocolate addicted, I know that I crave that candy sometimes. I crave the quick fix and the, the hit of, oh, this is good, even when I know that it isn't, it isn't my gold. Um, so I love yeah, that. Thank you. Yeah. And a lot of times we do have to ask ourselves, it was funny because I was talking about retail therapy. I was near one of my favorite stores recently and I was like, oh, I should go in here because I'm right in the neighborhood. You know what I mean? And I had like got done a little early. So I like, oh, I have an extra hour. And then I remember like with the time change, it did start an hour earlier. And I'm like, okay, you can go look at your favorite shoes here. <laughs> okay. Or you can go home and you know, who knows how much longer I'm, I'm here in Wisconsin and we are 60s this week and loving it. But how, you know, how much longer will I have this daylight in, in, you know, 50, 60 degree weather mm-hmm. with the dogs? So it was like, do you want to look at the shoes or do you want to go enjoy this weather and maybe go for a walk with the dogs? And I literally turned around and, you know, chosen yeah. in that time, you know, that was my goal for that day. That was the gold. It's beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Sometimes I pick candy. I'm a chocolate lover too. I got to admit, we all, we all do it. Yeah. And and we don't need to be all cranky and judgy about ourselves in that we all do it. But to to have some awareness about it gives us a lot more power, you know, of of am I choosing this? And yeah, okay. That that's what I chose. Okay. Um, I think it's really cool. I like that. Thank you. So if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? So um I have a website, carolcaninetraining.com. I do, I'm virtual. I work with clients all over. Um, I specialize, although I do a lot of aggression cases, I specialize in fear, anxiety, trauma, um, puppy mill dogs. I share my life with um, a hoarding case dog and um, two puppy mill dogs. So that's pretty much my passion. Um, Always been an underdog for the shop. I fearful. Mm -hmm. Shy and fearful. So mm-hmm. um, that's me, Carol's Canine Training. Perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me today to just sort of explore the art of being a free spirit, always looking for your gold. It was lovely talking with you. It was lovely talking with you. Thanks, Kelly. 
Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.